great Scott. Are you a sports fan who loves to have a good laugh? Oh, yeah. Then you're in the right place. I'm going to make him an offer again. Life moves pretty fast. Welcome to the Man Cave Chronicles. Welcome to another episode of the Man Cave Chronicles podcast, a podcast of top culture where everyone has a story. I'm your host, Elias, and you can find me on Twitter at the MCC Podcast. My guest this week, you've seen him as George McFly in Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3. You've seen him as Teddy Conway in Pell Rider. My guest, Jeffrey Wiseman. Jeffrey, welcome to the cave. Hey, it's dark in here. <laughs> so what the, how are you, man? What's going on with you? Hey, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm having a pretty good day. It's a beautiful day, actually. Yeah. What am I doing inside? I'm, maybe I, maybe I could take this outside. It's it's gorgeous out. <laughs> What's the what is the weather like out there? I'm from I'm calling from Massachusetts. Oh oh, you know I'm on the west coast where um, it's a probably about 82 degrees, a nice sunny day. Um, it's funny because it though is starting to feel like fall already. It's it's just you know two thirds of the way through September and it's it's really feeling like fall. Yeah. What's the What's the lowest it gets uh, around your area during the winter? During the winter? Yeah, fall and winter. It'll where I, I'm out in the uh, country a little bit north of San Francisco, up in the wine country, and and we'll get down to freezing once in a while. Okay. Uh, you know, but nothing like what you're gonna get back there. Uh, we we don't get anywhere near too far below freezing, but uh, once in a while, yeah. I, I think every ten years there's a freak storm that dusts the local hills with with snow. Yeah. That's not too bad. No. So you've had an interesting career. You've worked on stage, television, movies, commercials, and uh, but I want the listeners to get a little bit more about you. Where are you originally from? My mother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I I was I was born and raised in L.A. I I'm a, a Hollywood kind of kid who grew up wanting to be in show business, and my parents really didn't want me to be in show business, so they kind of kept me from pursuing it until, you know, I got out of high school and I was going to do what I wanted. They started helping me a little bit. Uh, you know, that's how I kind of got my foot in the door because I was wanting to be on sets of, of big movies. And so there was a company offering waiver type extra work to wannabes. You know, you paid them uh, I, I forget what it was, 60 or 90 bucks. And then they'd put you on sets. And that's how I started doing some background work on films like uh, Zemeckis's first film, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And, uh, you know, I was a Ringo fan in that. And uh, the film FM and uh, The Rose with Bette Midler and, and Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, where I got brainwashed by Alice Cooper. It's one of those crazy Boy Scouts. Um, but, you know, ultimately doing extra work is not very satisfactory uh, for for a, an actor wanting to tell stories yeah uh, and you know I had different casting directors and folk tell me you know you got to get good training and so I set my sights on on that and that brought me up to the San Francisco Bay Area where I got into the American Conservatory theater and uh, really fell in love with the Bay Area it's nothing like Los Angeles where kind of anything goes in San Francisco. You can be your freaky self. It doesn't matter if you're gay or lesbian or are mentally ill. You, you're treated like 
everyone else. You know, you kind of dealt with respect no matter who or what you are. Whereas in L.A., it seems like everyone's self-conscious and afraid to be themselves and everyone's struggling and knifing each other in the back for success. And so it was kind of refreshing for me. And uh, I was going to ACT and San Francisco State doing my intermediate studies when I fell into an opportunity to screen test for a major motion picture. And I had a hot new agent out of the William Morris agency pursue me. And uh, I screen tested with Ali Sheedy to be uh, the David role in War Games. Okay. And that agent brought me back to Los Angeles because whether or not I got that part, she was going to represent me and, and help me launch a career, sort of my childhood dream of you know being in Hollywood. Uh, so I went back down to L.A. and had about a 20-year run before the traffic drew me out. I just uh, drove me out, rather. Um, I was become becoming kind of a monster uh, on the freeway because I'd see people cutting, cutting each other off and cutting me off, and I would like get so take it personally. And I was like, I can't do this. This is not me. So I, I uh, decided it was time to support my wife uh, in her career in the wine industry. So I've moved up to the, uh, the, wine, the wine country where I live. Now, you, you mentioned War Games. That was the you went for the part that Matthew Broderick got. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the day I tested, they uh, the original director Martin Brest saw it as a very heavy dramatic piece, and uh, he had he had to find a really great new young non actor talent that he could put in the role, and he had open calls in like five different cities in Seattle and New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, and. I got uh, uh, the screen test. I think I may have been the only a actor who came in through those open calls. Uh, the other actors, Dana Carvey and uh, John Stockwell and, and uh, Eric Stoltz and all that, they all came in through agents. Okay. And, uh, and uh, you know, a couple weeks into shooting, uh, Martin Brest was released and John Badham ended up finishing the film um, because I, I think he saw it. Martin Bress had a different vision as opposed to the sort of lighter, almost comedic war games film that it that ended up being. Um, not that it was comedic, but it was lighter hearted in tone than I think the seriousness that, that Martin wanted yeah. and the, the executives kind of butted heads during the process. So you mentioned uh, you did a lot of background work. Uh, so what was like your first gig like in the acting in the world after you, after doing all that background work? Well, the, uh, you know, I, I can never stop doing stage. I, I love doing live theater. So I was doing live shows all during the period that I was studying. And then after moving back to L.A. after the War Games audition, I was kind of a hot item. So a lot of doors opened up for general auditions, general interviews and and various auditions uh, that were looking for young talent. And I uh, eventually landed a, a tiny co-star role in the fourth segment, George Miller's segment of Twilight Zone movie, okay. uh, which when that audition came in, it was a total surprise uh, because it was three months after the accident, which I was sure was going to just stop that film in the water. But Spielberg got enough footage of that segment to finish it and decided he wanted to carry on and finish the whole film. Um, so it was a bit of a shock, but I went in and met George Miller, who was a lovely human being and uh, we got along very well, and he cast me 
in but it was pretty much a, a small passenger role. In fact, I, I think my seat was right across the aisle from John Lithgow. So a lot of the time the camera was at my seat. Um, but in rehearsals, we came up with different lines and bits of business. And I'm on, on camera a little bit. Uh, and it was a really lovely experience to work with that ensemble and, and George Miller. Yeah. So before we went on the air, we mentioned, you mentioned uh, you did improv while you were studying and everything. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, uh, improv has always been something that, that I've worked on. Uh, as an actor, you know, a starving actor, you diversify to make a living. And one of the things I did often was uh, were murder mysteries. And uh, impro- improvising during murder mysteries is key. Improvising when uh, on auditions, uh, when a script isn't fully developed or char- they just have an outline with characters. Uh, I also work a lot uh, doing festivals like Renaissance fairs and Charles Dickens Christmas fairs, where a lot of the time you're improvising. And so it, building an improv muscle has been uh, important at one point. Uh, I started working with improv groups around Los Angeles, uh, finding some were, you know, not so much improvising. A lot of them were, were being creative and thinking about gags before they'd go on stage, and which wasn't true improv. And then finally finding a group of, of wonderful folk that I started jamming with out of the Groundlings and various other improv training uh, programs. And we just do our our jams together and out of those jams came a group that I was in called the comedy omelet. And then when the omelet broke up, I took those who were interested in staying together and, and I became the artistic director of a group called the flying penguins. And then the flying penguins became the varsity players for a newly formed Los Angeles theater sports, which is based in more like narrative improv, but done in the style of like a, a sporting event to uh, get audience participation really upped. And uh, that group, which we started, I guess, in 89, I want to say, is still extant, doing amazing work as an impro in Los Angeles. They're based in Los Angeles, but they tour around, and they'll do full-on improvised shows based on Jane Austen or Shakespeare or Tennessee Williams or uh, musicals, you know, uh, just really an amazing talented group that that people out of whose line are in like michael mcshane and brian loman and greg proops will join them once in a while but dan o'connor and Edie patterson o'connor are are heading that up and they're really terrific people and they also have training for people who are really serious about narrative improv yeah. do you, when when you did improv did you enjoy uh, interacting with the audience oh yeah i on so many levels because it's it's very much pleased the audience by taking a suggestion that they give and seeing where it where it takes you you know you are the the fool of the tarot card going off the cliff uh, trusting the the skies to take you and and take you wherever it uh, it's going to go and you really can't sort of try to guide well you can guide it but you can't try to you know shape it and and uh, if it's a truly collaborative you've got to go with what people are giving you. And if what people are giving you is fun, and if if you take the uh, equation, if that is true, then this must be true, then it goes to new levels uh, of, of God knows where it's going to go. And, and anything goes. It's very much like child play when you're little and you're really using your imagination wholeheartedly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, and it's done by adults. Hmm. So how did you, so in between work, uh, I read that you worked at Universal Studios and you did a lot of like, you played a, uh, Stan Laurel and Charlie Chaplin. How did you fall into that? And how did you practice those impressions? Well, there's uh, multiple questions there. I, I was in between uh, television and, and film gigs, and I needed some work to pay the bills. And I had heard, I had a, a buddy who actually played Stan Laurel, had a lookalike company. Uh, Jeff Breyer was his name, and Marvel was his company. And he asked if I'd ever played Stan Laurel. I said, no, but what do you got? And he said his Oliver Hardy partner who had worked at Universal for a, a year or two already, was looking for a new Stan Laurel. And so I remembered enjoying Laurel and Hardy as a kid, but I didn't remember a lot about them. So I put together what I had wardrobe-wise and went up and auditioned. Uh, luckily, because I had it all wrong, luckily the actor playing Oliver Hardy, his, whose name was Beavis Faversham, knew me from a production of Romeo and Juliet that I had done in Hollywood where I played Mercutio and he turned to the, the boss and said, this guy's got talent. I'll put him together. I'll, I'll, I'll train him. And within a couple of weeks, yeah, I got hired and within a couple of weeks I was doing a passable Stan Laurel, which was good because uh, very shortly thereafter I started doing events that Stan Laurel's daughter would attend, Lois Laurel, and uh, even events for the International Sons of the Desert, uh, the official Laurel and Hardy fan club. Uh, I'd be sent to those events to play Stanley. So those folk really will scrutinize you. And uh, I had to get my act together quickly and, and learn very quickly what a genius Stan Laurel was. He he not only, you know, starred as the character he developed as the Laure Stan Laurel, we know, but he also wrote a lot and directed a lot. He uh, really was the brains behind a lot of their, their films. And, you know, with the new film coming out, uh, I think that'll come out that a lot of people probably aren't even aware of that. I, I knew very little about Stan Laurel. I knew very little about Charlie Chaplin before I started playing Charlie. I, yeah. I saw the actor that they used at Universal for years playing Charlie, just kind of doing a subpar rendition of Chaplin. And I, I felt uh, that there needed to be some integrity. So I, I put my Charlie together and that made him up his Charlie in quality. And, and so it was a win-win. Mm -hmm. So I could, also get extra days when he wasn't working. And then a year later after that, I put together playing Groucho Marx. So uh, in, it's, I think the biggest benefit for me in acting those characters and almost any acting job I get is, is the research I do. And I, I learn, I learn so much. And that's why I love doing living history and the Renaissance fairs and the, and the Dickens fairs, because I, I get to research. Uh, you know, recently I've been playing Mark Twain and I've learned so much about Twain. It's it's amazing. I, I even have a one man show based on a, a part of Twain's life that that is often neglected that I can't wait to get mounted. Uh, so it, uh, like uh, getting back to your original question, I fell into working at Universal. Then that type of work has taken me around the world. I had my Laurel and Hardy magic show that I co-wrote in the South China Sea, where I took to several countries on cruise ships. I've played Charlie for the Niles SNA Museum Studio in, in Fremont, California, where uh, Charlie made uh, five or six films. Uh, Groucho has taken me to uh, fundraisers where I actually played for the Marx family uh, at a, a benefit where we honored the Marx brothers. And, and to have Groucho's nephew 
say that I was probably one of the best grouches he'd ever seen was, you know, just really hit home. It, it was really lovely. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, try to take a lot of care when, when doing impressions. And I think, you know, which you'll probably get to very soon here is, you know, how did they find me for George McFly and back to the future part two and three. And I think part of the equation was that I was very good and adept at picking up, uh, the physicalizations and uh, vocalizations to imitate these classic characters. And because they were trapped or kind of in a corner where they didn't have Crispin Glover because he, their contract negotiations broke down and they had to have him to recreate these scenes from part one of back to the future. They came to me, uh, which I quickly uh, demonstrated. I could not only do the impressions, but I could also act and hopefully break some new ground for them. How, speaking, so now you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Back to the Future. How did it even get to, to get you to look exactly like him? That, that must have been a lot of makeup. Yes, it was. It was uh, about four hours of application every morning. Wow. I think we got it down to three and a half eventually. But for all three makeups I did, I wore George McFly prosthetics age 17 age 47 and age 77 for 55, yeah. 85 and 2015. Yeah. Wow. So and, you... Uh, you know, it was, it, it's long, tedious hours of application. Yeah. Another hour at the end of a long shoot day to, to remove the makeup. Yeah. Um, so when they approached you to play the, the part, uh, like how did that make you feel at first? Like when you knew that Crispin wasn't coming back? Well, I, I didn't know that Crispin wasn't coming back when I, when uh, actually the same lookalike agent called me asking if I knew who Crispin was, I said, sure. I worked with him on a film at the American film Institute before he got the first back to the future movie. I thought he was a fascinating actor. And I was, what do you got? And he says, well, the production was looking for a, a photo double for him. And at the time my ex-wife was having our second child and I didn't have my medical insurance. I needed the work. And so I was willing to do, you know, this photo double work uh, just to get my hours so I can get my medical coverage. And so I started meeting with casting and then makeup uh, designer Ken Chase uh, and got fitted for these prosthetics and even a body cast for a special effect. And, I, you know, I was told actually by the makeup designer that Crispin wasn't coming back about a, a week before the, the uh, studio even called my theatrical agent to offer a contract. And I was like, well, how are they going to do this without Crispin? And, and in my mind, they were going to need two Georges in the same shot. Like they used, you know, uh, Kevin, uh, who doubled Michael J. Fox as a photo double. He would be up on the catwalk when Michael's on stage playing the guitar in the Enchantment Under the Sea Dance, or Michael would be up on the catwalk while Kevin was playing guitar on stage. So they would, you know be able to cheat and they needed two at the same time. Well, I figured that's probably what they needed for George where in, uh, in reality they didn't have George at all. They didn't have Crispin at all, except maybe some close-up shots from the first film, which they used without his permission. That's why, why he sued. And also for the makeups, they, they put me in, wow. so but they, they settled out of court, you know, it never got to court. They, they saw that they probably wouldn't win and gave them three quarters of a million dollars to go away. So pretty much when they brought you on, you didn't even like have to audition or anything. They just brought you on and told you this is what you're going to do. No, I did have to audition. You did. 
Oh yeah, first I met with the the assistant directors, and uh, because I had worked with Clint Eastwood on Pale Rider and George Miller on Twilight Zone and a host of other movies and TV shows, uh, they knew I was a credible acting talent. And then uh, because of my lookalike stuff, my abilities, you know, they that was an added uh, bonus. But then I went and had to audition at casting for uh, Feinberg Taylor Casting, and that went well. And then I had to have a screen test in the in the young George makeup with with uh, jo- uh, Bob Zemeckis and uh, Dean Cundey. Okay. Now, did you study the first film after you knew that you were going to be doing this to see how I, how how like uh, Crispin acted in the show or in the movie? I, I mean, I think I did watch the film, but after I was cast, I was. Uh, also given a bunch of old out outtakes and screen tests and stuff okay. and to study more. And, and that stuff was really fascinating because I was a huge fan of the first film. I mean, who wasn't exactly? Yeah. <laughs> and, and when Crispin came on, I was like, Hey, I know that guy. He's knocking it out of the park. He's great. Yeah. And, uh, so I, you know, had already an appreciation for the performance. You know, Crispin had this very unique physicalization where he'd, lead with his head and he had sort of this hunch over i think maybe because michael j fox was short and crispin you know is pretty much taller than him crispin is even taller than me um so he had certain postures and this strut that he used and these hand gestures and this quirkiness and he and he has a placement of his voice you know i i, I did more of that for old george um but uh, as young george you know you even hear me say are you okay you know, and, you know, you hear me do some of the lines. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I studied those screen tests and, and uh, makeup tests. And some of the fun things I saw in one of them, you see Tom Wilson, you know, who played Biff, come up with that line with McFly. What is that? Uh, do you ancestors from an Irish bug or whatever he come up, it came up with. So you, you see the genius of you know, Tom Wilson and, and Crispin in the screen tests and Leah uh, and Crispin, you know, improvising uh, just so Zemeckis can get an idea of how their relationship is going. Really fun, fun footage that a lot of it has not never been released. Do you have a favorite scene that you were in, in uh, number two or number three? Uh, you know, I love, of course, the recreation of knocking Biff out in the parking lot fight. I love that. You know, Tom was a, a, a wonderful person to work with. And, you know, that scene is so iconic and being able to recreate it. And, you know, I'd say 70 percent of the people out there still don't know that's a different actor. Yeah. You know, we did. We nailed it. And and it, uh, you know, it was tedious, hard, long hours to get it that way. And, you know, most actors out there, I don't think could do it. And, and so I've, I felt very honored to uh, be chosen to, to do it. You know, they were in a corner uh, that don't necessarily agree with how they did it and, and the battle that uh, ensued and all the fallout. I mean, I, I, in fact, was became collateral damage when it came out that, you know, I, I totally saw Crispin's side of, of him deserving to get uh, pay for, for using his like, likeness and, and footage. Yeah. Um, so that that became sticky point for Universal and me. They they uh, saw to it that I didn't get cast again by them. Yeah. So it was kind of screwed up. 
Um, but I, uh, you know, got to be a part of this amazing trilogy that the fans just every generation finds new fans and the world fans uh, love the cast. And, and I'm brought to reunions every so often. So that for me is the reward. Do you. Are you well now? I don't think it's ever going to happen, but are you surprised we never saw number four as soon as like number three ended? Uh, no, I'm not surprised. I mean, the the trilogy really holds together as a, a nice little package. I, I could see maybe the story continuing with Jules and Vern, you know, Doc's kids going back and finding some Michigas and, and trying to solve that with. Yeah. with you know, Chris Lloyd making a cameo or Michael making a cameo or two, but it probably have to be a whole new story. I don't see any reason why they would want to remake the original. It kind of, it's, I, yeah, I it's don't, I don't want to see a remake. <laughs> yeah. And then there've been a lot of big names interested in playing the role. I know Daniel Radcliffe at one point wanted to play Marty, you know, other big stars have been open to playing those roles in remakes but Zemeckis and Bob Gale, you know, they've they've said adamantly over our dead bodies. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know, you know, once they're gone, if Universal then will retain the rights and say, well, uh, we're going to do it whether you guys like it or not. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> do you, so do you enjoy doing the reunions and like the Comic Cons to meet the fans? Oh, how could I not? I'm a, I'm a real people person. I love people i while working at universal i learned to greet in 15 different languages i just i love world culture and and when folk from other countries know that you've made an attempt to at least greet them in their own language they open up and and become very friendly and and it's just a whole world of of loveliness opens and when i do fan events in other countries or even here locally you know i i see the example babies and strollers who are bored out of their minds sometimes and i i learned how to make balloon animals while on the job wow. you know at universal so i'll make the kid a balloon animal and and the kid will be happy the parents will be happy i'll autograph a picture for the parent who grew up with those films and it meant a special thing to them as part of their life and they're happy so everybody's happy and then i get to meet often my idols you know i I was gobsmacked when I met uh, Sir Derek Jacobi at London Comic Con, my first one, and uh, was able to rub elbows with my heroes, you know, and Leonard Nimoy and various other big stars that, you know, I've loved over the years. Being able to sit with them as a peer and talk shop is just incredibly rewarding. Then to be kind of, you know, uh, friendly with these fans who just are uh, in shock meeting me. You know, I pinch myself going, okay, it's just me, but they are happy, and that makes me happy. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, yeah, you're right, because I've been to three Comic-Cons that came locally in my area, and this past one that I just went to, I went, I took the wife and we went, and only I wanted to meet Ralph Macchio from The Karate Kid, and there was a couple other guys that we met, and um, even Henry Winkler was there, great guy to meet, and then there was another person, I don't want to mention names, it kind of felt like he didn't even want to be there. So I was like disappointed. I met this person that I enjoyed watching in the eighties growing up and it wasn't the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the celebs don't want to be there, but they're contractually obligated or yeah. they need the money or what have you. Uh, you know, I, I know I need the money. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but uh, when it when you see that, it's very disappointing. Did you by chance mention the Ralph? Well, I guess it's probably a sore subject, but you know, um, Marty McFly was offered to Ralph. Really? I never yeah, knew that. That was my understanding. I, I believe he turned it down. You know, they they wanted Michael from the go get. And when they couldn't get Michael because the producers of uh, Family Guys wouldn't let him out of the contract, they wouldn't even let him know about the project. They started hunting around, you know, for other uh, Q-rated actors of that period. And and I know they even auditioned Johnny Depp for George McFly. That would have been a, an interesting film with yeah. Ralph Macchio and, and Johnny Depp. Um, and 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 Crispin, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ralph Macho. Chris, Christopher Lloyd actually oh. threw the script away originally. Wow. And when they didn't hear back from Chris Lloyd, they uh, were looking at uh, Dudley Moore, uh, John Lithgow, who was taking a year off, and, and uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum for Doc Brown. It's a very fascinating how castings go. And, you know, the, the, everyone knows they got Eric Stoltz and shot for about seven weeks or eight weeks with Eric before – you know, they were like, this isn't a drama. This is, we need, we need some more lightness to this. And, and Michael all of a sudden became available and they switched gears to get who they wanted originally back. And, um, you know, I'm sure it was embarrassing for Eric. Um, but at least, you know, they stuck by their guns and wanted, knew what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I did read that he was, he was doing, he was filming back to the future and family ties at the same time. Uh, the same with during part two. Yeah. He, he was doing the last season of Family Ties while we were shooting with him often at night or on the weekends. Wow. Wow. I don't know how he did it. That's a lot of work. I asked him. I said, Michael, where would you, you when do you get to sleep? Yeah. And he said, oh, in the in the limousines in between the studios yeah. on those limo rides. <laughs> it's like, no wonder you you named your your kid after your chauffeur. <laughs> So uh, you teach acting also. Um, how did you get? To, how did you decide you wanted to teach acting? Well, once again, out of necessity, uh, a character actor. You know, I don't do the leads as much anymore. I'm uh, happy to, but I don't have maybe the chiseled looks uh, or or curating that most film productions want for a lead. Once in a while, I'll, I'll still get a lead, but uh, as a character actor, you know the parts are not all that frequent and especially since I'm not based in LA, I won't keep a, an LA agent because I can't be available for an audition at the drop of a hat. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll still come to LA for work. Um, but most of the time things that are cast, uh, you know, it's kind of once again, few and far between. So I need to supplement my income with what I know. And I know acting, I've studied a lot of different techniques from, uh, Meisner to Strasbourgian method to, uh, you know, Stella Adler uh, actions and, and Uta Hagen. You know, I, I know a good sampling of a lot of different techniques so I can expose my students to a little bit of each, you know, the exercises that seem to resonate with them and find what works. And that and then we'll continue working with them in those uh, frames, in, the, in those techniques, uh, because I just I can't really take the cultish this is the only technique that you should be studying this is the only thing that works everyone's wired differently and people have different things that resonate for them and i'm a strong advocate of exposing yourself to the different techniques and finding what what works i have several techniques that i find work 
almost with everyone, for example, a cold reading technique that I teach is really remarkable for freeing up uh, yourself of self-consciousness and connecting with your scene partner while the text is living. Um, some really great things that I, that I bring to my classes. What's the one best advice that you give to a student that wants to become like an actor in Hollywood? Uh, f find something practical to make a living with. Make make uh, you know a foundation there in whatever it can be, whatever it, a vocation other than acting, uh, because very very few actors make a living at it. Uh, so so if you can be a chef, if you can be an attorney, if you can be a doctor, you know, uh, be a, a a broker, what whatever you can, have that as a foundation. Put enough money aside to take maybe pilot season off or take a year off to really go wholeheartedly into acting or just do it, you know, uh, part time with great photos, build up your resume, get training and then, you know, ask the hard questions when people start, you know, saying I could represent you and, you know, ask, OK, show me what you've done and and make sure they're legit. You know, there's too many scams out there for hungry uh, wannabes. And uh, that's a, that's, you know, another big thing that I, I have actors uh, I have to coach actors on. A lot of actors also I see make it these days because they're really driven. I mean, so much that they are always networking. They're living it all the time and they're and they cut through the chase. They're very aggressive. Okay. And sometimes that's the way to be because it's it's very cutthroat and there's so much production out there it's hard to find the stuff that is going to pay and that is going to be really quality stuff because you you want to work on quality stuff so you can keep building your resume building your reputation and building your demo reel what's the, what's the best advice that you received when you were going through the whole acting i i was a kid yeah. <laughs> and uh i think i just graduated Oh my gosh, what was it? Fifth grade or sixth grade? And uh, uh, segment, an episode of the FBI was shooting in my neighborhood. I, it was really fun in the park there. There was a an armored truck wreck and uh, Efren Zimbalis Jr. was there and the actors were out and the crew was out. And, and I, I introduced myself to, uh, I remember Monty Markham, an actor who I'd seen on other TV shows, was there as the guest star and I introduced myself. I said, I, I recognized him, told him what show I knew him from. And he liked that. And, and, uh, I said, I'm, I'm going to be an actor. And he said, Oh yeah, that's great. And he got called to set and this other character actor said, yeah, what do you got there kid? Is that your report card? And I said, yeah. He says, let me take a look. He says, Whoa, there you go. There's a, a B in English and there's a, a, a B in science. What's this D in math? You can't get a D in math kid. <laughs> Are you going to know if your agent's cheating you or not? You got to be better in math. So I think that was pretty good advice. <laughs> what do you think has been the hardest role that you've played so far in your career? Uh, gosh, well, there's been quite a few that have been challenging. Uh, a couple years ago in an independent film that's streaming on Amazon called Savior of None, I play a, a, a widower, very depressed uh, epileptic. Who who benefit? Uh, I'm sorry, befriends an adolescent girl who's being abused in the foster care sy system and by the local gang, 
and I become my character becomes her avenging angel. Um, so that was very hard because uh, the script called for me to have one grand mal seizure, and I ended up having a second grand mal seizure because it just was right for the intensity of the scene where where the character drives this girl away. And as soon as the door shuts, I flew back and went right into an epileptic seizure. It was like, okay, you know, uh, it's like that improv stuff. Let it, let it uh, move in if it's there. Yeah. And luckily, the director and cameraman, you know, stayed with me and and followed. And the scene is very potent. Um, so that was a big challenge doing a, a a role that had all this physicalization, had all this emotional stuff, had a very important story to tell, had to then you know, become sort of amoral and being an avenging angel, you know, taking out the, the rapists and so on and so forth. And, and that's not generally my nature. I'm not a violent person. Uh, I'm, I don't have epilepsy. I, uh, am not very all the time depressed, you know, so I had to really dig deep, physicalize and bring this character to life and be believable, you know, not to, over the top because it's it's on film and and it's really easy to overact on film. So and also it was an extremely low no budget f- film and so I was dealing with long hours with not the greatest food and uh rest. So it was it was a hell of a challenge. But uh but it came out great. So what do you think has been your favorite character that you performed? Would you say it's George McFly? Uh I I, w- I wish I could. Um, I wasn't given a lot of liberty to develop like I have been on other films. Okay. You know, they first of all wanted to keep me a secret. Spielberg and uh, Gale and Zemeckis and Canton, Marshall and Kennedy, they they kind of wanted to keep it low key that it wasn't the original actor after they had already promised everyone the original cast are coming back. Um, so th- they certainly didn't want to bring attention to me and they certainly didn't want Crispin to see that they used his likeness uh, in the makeups uh, because, you know, as everyone knows, he, he got upset and sued. So uh, so I wasn't really given the liberty to develop much. I got a, a couple of things in as old George in 2015, some comedy stuff that mostly got cut out. The eating a banana upside down was very funny because the peel kept slapping me <laughs> and rotating my access for dinner and going for... <laughs> Um, that was cut. That's in the bonus materials. So it wasn't necessarily George, but I did do a film. Now it's a cult classic because you can't find it anywhere except I think you can get a copy for a hundred bucks on Amazon of a film called Corked, which was another very low budget mockumentary on uh, the wine world in which I play an obsessive compulsive winemaker. And the liberty I had in that film, I've, first of all, I'm playing this guy who doesn't allow anything from picking of the grapes to the crush to the bottling to the selling uh cellaring and selling uh he doesn't let anyone do anything but him and he's obsessive about it and it was a really fun comedic character to have find the quirks and i also was able to work with the the writers and directors and come up with about 30 percent new stuff based on uh what was inspired by the script i would use my improv muscle and say, how about if we try this? How about if we try this? And almost 90% of the time they said, sure. And a lot of it got left in the film. And it, a lot of it's very funny. It, it really worked out. The film's a little uneven because it's, uh, you know, not a Hollywood production. And there's a in, con- inconsistent on the talent levels that are in it. 
but I think ultimately it's a really fun film, and especially if people like wine and the wine industry and can laugh at themselves, uh, it's a wonderful film. Um, so you've done a lot of interviews and podcasts. Uh, what's something that you wish you got asked that you never get asked? Ooh, oh, that's that's something. Hmm. I think I think you just asked asked it. <laughs> I. You know, I th I'm not sure what what question I would want to be asked. I have, as you say, done a lot of podcasts and and uh, vlogs and so on and so forth, where uh, I'm asked pretty much the same questions over and over about the Back to the Future stuff because that's the most pop thing I've done. Uh, I think, though, what you ask about, you know, the the Things that actors would need. I mean, I, I like that because I like to give to others of my f actor family and don't want necessarily them to fall into the same traps that I had. You know, yeah. never pay for an audition, never, uh, you know, go into something that's promising you a role in something, you know, that you're paying for workshops first. That's often, you know, a scam. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm happy to give tips and and advice people can reach me right through my my website i'm i'm not in hiding yeah. uh you mentioned you're writing a book tell us a little bit about that <laughs> okay uh yeah i've got a lot of stories i've i was raised in in the weird 60s where i think we were caught as a society between very kind of oppressive victorian ethics of the 50s and uh a lot of you know strict uh dogma to you know my older brother and sister being there in the heart of the sexual revolution and the anti-vietnam movement and the civil rights movement so it was a really interesting time to be a kid to see all the adults trying to figure out what is the right path here and and then there were a lot of uh, a lot of adults uh living this drug culture you know prescription drugs especially in hollywood were were rampant and you know it's if you see the adults doing drugs to maintain their composure, you know, no wonder kids in the 70s really took off with, you know, smoking pot and then what came next, angel dust and, and then the cocaine epidemic and the crack epidemic. You know, the, our drug culture uh, caused a lot of really severe behaviors in, in both my peers and the adults. And so I have chapters on all that in my upbringing and then chapters on uh, you know, the different, uh, awakenings in my life, uh, both spiritually and sexually. And, uh, the, the, I, you know, I touch on everything, even the pets in my life. I have a f great fondness for the domestic pets that my, my family kept and, and uh, keeping their memories alive is one way that I, I do it by writing. And, and then of course, all my Hollywood stories, gosh, never ending. I've, I'm up to like you say, sixty-five thousand words, and and I still feel I'm just at the tip of the iceberg. When when is your goal to try to release this? Oh, I'd say fifty years after my death. I don't want <laughs> some of my friends and uh, relatives to hear some of the things I have to say because it's I, like, you know, kind of uh, truthful, and a lot of the time, truth is uh, stranger than fiction and hard to hear. But uh, no, I don't know. I probably, I probably release sections when I when I'm ready. Um, 
give me give me another year or two there you go <laughs> and lastly uh how can the listeners find you on social media well I, i'm on instagram jeffrey j weissman i i'm on twitter as uh jef weissman at jef weissman uh, I'm, I have a Jeffrey Weissman fan page on Facebook. Uh, my personal page, Facebook, has been filled to the 5,000 max for seven years. Uh, every once in a while, someone from my past creeps up and I have to excuse a fan or someone I don't know that well to add a cousin or a, a fan, family member or friend that I've reconnected with. Uh, that's ultimately very frustrating. Um, and, and like I say, I have a, a, my website, jeffreyweissman.com, which needs a new webmaster. If anyone out there wants to help me, I, I sure could use it. Um, but I, people can email me there. They can order you know, an autographed picture uh, very inexpensively. Uh, and I'm reachable there for bookings. Right. I, I, like I say, I, I perform wherever I can now. I do living history. Uh, just last week, we did... Uh, a Back to the Future 3 themed fundraiser for Michael's Parkinson's Research Foundation where we shot the films up in Sonora and up in the gold country. There were four days for fans from around the world came in and relived Back to the Future Part 3. Wow. We had uh, the uh, first night was a, a campfire eat out where we uh, then all took lanterns and found the, the mine where the DeLorean time machine had been buried, you know, stashed away. Uh, we, we did a parade. We had a screening of the film where the film was shot in Red Hills. Uh, they're, they're, Terry and Oliver Holler, who are to the future.org, who've built their own time machine DeLorean, have taken it to every state and many different countries now to raise money for Parkinson's designed this event as a fan event that hopefully will be reoccurring. Uh, so it, at the last minute, Dean Cundy, our cinematographer on all three films, was able to attend. And then I also helped them bring in Marvin J. McIntyre, who played The Undertaker in part three, came out from New York. So the fans who came in from Russia and Denmark and France and really all over the place just had the time of their lives. It was really a once in a lifetime type of event. Uh, I want to personally thank you for coming out. This was so much fun listening to your stories. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get you, get you to talk much. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to interview you for one of these. Yeah.